it could have happened like this. A young girl is standing at a large intersection in the shallow, glowing pool of a streetlight. She stretches out her arm, holds up her thumb, and waits. Summit, New Jersey has a charming downtown area that is full of businesses. But at 8.30 p.m. on a Monday night, most of them are already closed. It is August in New Jersey, so even though the sun had only set 24 minutes earlier, it is still 80 degrees outside. The sky is partly cloudy and the moon is a waning crescent. Two days away from being new, a delicate glowing sliver in the sky that hardly gives any light. A thumbnail moon, as some would call it. I tell my children it is the Cheshire Cat's smile. The busy stream of cars that pours by early in the day have slowed down to a trickle, and the young girl is waiting impatiently for someone to pick her up. It is 1972, a time when hitchhiking is both easy and common, before Ted Bundy and Ed Kemper were household names. The girl is wearing a light blue t-shirt and tan pants. She fidgets with the strap of her purse and absentmindedly holds the small gold cross that hangs around her neck to her lips, perhaps going to put it in her mouth, but then thinking better of it. She is just 16 and her small frame is only made to look smaller by the large surrounding brick buildings and empty air. Her dark hair is parted down the middle and hangs at her shoulders, slowly frizzing in the warm air. She reaches up to smooth it down, but it's hopeless at this point. Her face looks mildly annoyed, but is lax and at its default. People probably think she's mad all the time. She isn't. Finally, a car pulls up. Inside, a 19-year-old girl is driving. She is boisterous and welcoming. Picking up a hitchhiker feels daring, and she smiles at the thought of relaying the story later. She is surprised to find someone so young and outwardly helpless with her thumb out in the dark and wants to know if she needs help. The young girl tells the driver she needs to get to Berkeley Heights to meet up with some friends on a street corner. The driver shrugs as it's on her way and agrees to take her the short distance. In the car, the young girl doesn't say much and seems a bit nervous. She continues to fidget, her eyes cast downward. She doesn't say so, but she's been trying to see her friend and a boy she's been dating all day long. But her rides have fallen through and time seemed to slip through her fingers. She has lied to her parents to make it out there, and soon they will be wondering where she is. The young girl hopes the driver will hurry up. Approximately seven minutes later, the driver pulls up across the street from the corner in question. It's dark, but she sees three teenagers, a blonde girl and two boys all around the same age as the passenger. The boys are horsing around while the girl stands back a few paces and laughs. Everything seems to be on the up and up, just some kids trying to have a good time. The driver smiles, happy that she could be of service. The teenagers haven't noticed the car, but a hint of a smile curls up on the young hitchhiker's lips. She thanks the driver and exits the car, walking around the back and then up the street. She stuffs her hands into her pockets as she goes. The kids don't notice the sound of the car door shutting, but soon enough, the young hitchhiker will be among them, and so the driver figures she's safe and checks the rearview mirror before pulling out and heading on her way. She sees headlights coming up behind her, so she's quick about her exit and does not block traffic. 
The headlights are moving slowly, but this is a residential area at night, so it's not alarming. The young hitchhiker is walking toward her friends, excitement fizzing around in her ribcage like the bubbles in a fountain coke. If she was very quiet, she thinks, she could sneak up and startle them. It would be funny, and then maybe they forget about how long it took her to get there. She slows down her pace and keeps the snap of her flip-flops quiet as she walks. The headlights of the advancing car inch along behind her, slowly gaining on her and casting their light on the group of teenagers, potentially ruining the whole thing. Annoyed, the young girl turns around and puts a hand to her forehead, trying to make out the car in the blinding light, but it pulls up in front of a house and turns off its headlights. She thinks she must just be being paranoid and turns to keep approaching her friends, but the car silently clicks back in to drive. Behind the girl, it leaves its place at the curb and advances once more ever so slowly this time without its headlights on. The young girl has almost reached her group when the girl in the trio turns around and catches her. The girl in the trio was starting to feel bad for pressuring the young hitchhiker into meeting up with them, but seeing her smiling face, she knows they're going to have fun. They always do when they're together. She smiles and waves. The girl's smile widens as they make eye contact and she puts up her arm to wave back when suddenly her face changes. Her eyes widen, the whites suddenly very visible, and her mouth falls downward, going from crescent to full and then beyond. There is a shape your mouth can only make when seized by involuntary terror, wide and yet jagged, like the mouth of a cave. Her mouth does this silently for a second, and then she is gone, sucked backward by the waist into the driver's side door of an unknown car, like a sock caught in the vacuum. The car then speeds off, leaving no trace of its presence or the young girl behind. It seemed to have all happened within the fall of the second hand on the blonde girl's dainty wristwatch. For a moment, just a heartbeat really, she is too stunned to react. The sounds of the street corner have melted away, and all she can hear is her own blood pumping through her veins like a freight train, loud yet silent all at once. Then the world comes rushing back, the yellow of the streetlights, the smell of the grass, the sound of the boys laughing, crickets, and the swingy music of laughing caught on a breeze from a distant open window. She blinks twice, and then screams. The scream is guttural, and her face, previously mirroring the moon in the waning crescent of a tight smile, drops to full horror. The boys have seen nothing. It was that fast. They think the blonde girl has lost her mind, as she stands there screaming like a wounded animal, the boys try to comfort her, but then clap their hands over her mouth. Someone is going to call the cops. She is hysterical. The blonde explains in a panic, all the while trying to run toward the direction of the dark car, but the boys don't believe her. She must have imagined it. They had already smoked a little weed, and the blonde was a notorious lightweight. Maybe she was just too high and seeing nightmares in the shadows. There's no way a kidnapping could have taken place right under their noses. They dragged the blonde back to a friend's house, found her a ride, and got her back home. Shaken, the blonde went to bed and woke up the next morning convinced that the whole thing was a dream. But she was never the same again. Six weeks later, the dark-haired hitchhiker was discovered dead on a cliff in a local quarry. 
still in her tan pants and light blue t-shirt. She hadn't survived that night. She was surrounded by logs that seemed to form a makeshift cross, and a halo of stones circled her head. It was strangely still and beautiful, fans of ferns brushing her dark hair that now clung to her skull in ragged patches. You could almost still see her smoothing it down in the late summer heat. No one knew what happened to her or how she ended up there. The town pulled itself apart in the wake of unspeakable tragedy. Something this dark had to have been witchcraft. How could no one have seen anything? How could no one have known? Well, someone knew, didn't they? The blonde girl can still see her friend's pale face going wide with shock and terror. The cloud of dark hair swept forward as though she were underwater. She can hear the sound of laughing and the crickets and the smell of the August air. She no longer trusts her own mind to protect her and sees her friend smile every time she looks up at the waning crescent moon. It could have happened like that. And maybe it did. But remember, there is more than one version of every story, and it's up to you to decide who to trust. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. another big new jersey case for you guys this week yes yay this two-part episode and our subsequent special episode have been in the making for a long time our next two episodes uh, are covering the still unsolved 1972 murder of 16 year old springfield new jersey resident jeanette de palma we have been lucky enough to speak with weird new jersey writer and co-author of the book death on the devil's teeth the strange murder that shocked suburban new jersey jesse pollock Death on the Devil's Teeth and the prior Weird New Jersey article on Jeanette's disappearance and death are the definitive sources on this case. Like, that's the most information out there is in both of them. So they are our sources this week. We will link them everywhere. So we will be releasing our full interview with um, Jesse Pollock in our special episode. That was really fun to do. And he tells us a lot of um, really interesting stuff about like how he got the information for this case. Right. And I found that to be so fascinating because we never get that side. Yeah, absolutely. You just get like the polished thing afterwards. You don't know what went into it. Mm -hmm. So I think it was so cool to hear about the whole process. Yes. An almost 10-year process of gathering all the information on this case. I know, which is wild. It is. That's so long. Yeah. He just knew everything. He really did. Offhand, too, man. Yeah. He didn't have to look anything up. He knew all the names. He sure did. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really good. And I think you guys are going to love uh, hearing from Jesse. It was really great. He spent a decade of his life researching Jeanette De Palma. Um, and alongside Weird New Jersey editor Mark Moran, they have uncovered volumes of information, much of which seemed to have evaded the Union County police for decades, really. Yeah. So we're lucky locals. 
Jesse has been very generous with his time and knowledge. And I think you guys are going to really like this. So um, also this is um, a very local case. Like it's a New Jersey case. Obviously it's unsolved. It's about a young girl. And for a long time, it lacked a lot of information. So as soon as I started reading about it, I thought this kind of feels important for us specifically to cover. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that we are giving it so much of our time because I think it really does deserve it. Oh, and a lot, this is a fun little detail. A lot of the stuff in the opening monologue this week. So first of all, that theory is, that's a legitimate theory in this case. And it's gleaned from information that, you know, Jesse and Mark Moran gathered. But I also went in and got all of the weird specifics, things like the phase the moon was in and the exact temperature of the air. So that stuff is accurate to that day. Wow. It was fun. Thought it might be fun for you guys to know that. Impressive. (laughs) It's just fun to do. Fun to be like, oh, that's exactly what it was actually like outside. Yeah. So that's what it was. Anyway, in other news, fall is in the air. This week, we ushered in a new season and with it, some cooler weather, mm-hmm. which I enjoy very much. And so does Leslie because all the snakes go away. Yes. <laughs> I know. It needs to get just a little colder. Then they're not going to bother you. And they just need to go away. They, they go wherever they go. Ugh, I don't want to think about it because that's even creepier. <laughs> they, they just, they all die. Yeah. That's what happens. <laughs> Every one of them. And then they soon. grow back. <laughs> <laughs> like mosquitoes. Well. <laughs> Terrible. And spooky season is, as you guys all know, my time to shine. So I'm really yeah. excited the mm-hmm. fall is coming back for us. Uh, but I did notice that my night sitting by the campfire this past week has made my skin dull and dry and like patchy and red in places. Right. Yeah. No good. It's outdoorsy mm-hmm. for sure, but mm-hmm. not flattering. And spooky. And spooky. They're like, why do you have such gross combination skin? Right. But like, like not an attractive spook? No. Mm-hmm. No. No. Not like my shirt has ghosts on it, but it's also low cut. Right, right. <laughs> Not that moment. Anyway. Or like, she's so ugly. She's, she's gorgeous. Cute. Yeah. It's not that. <laughs> it's it's not that. Not at all. I tried chanting into the fire and burning all of my old skincare. Not the short soap products, of Good, course. Yeah. Just the other mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. But that just made my neighbors look at me funny and my fire pit smell weird. Mm, so yeah. not good. No. Right. Instead, I thought I'd just fall back on the most reliable remedy out there, a thin veil of validation, a hill worth dying on. Ooh, you went for it this week. I love it. I have a clear good, voice. Good work. We're a couple of hours a little earlier recording. We so. are. I, I sound like a nightmare, but yeah. yours is really good. <laughs> I get really bad seasonal fall allergies, so you'll have to excuse me. So where do I get this miraculous mist? Well, luckily for us, our fiends can make it appear. But how, you must be asking yourself. I was. Were you? In your head this week? Mm -hmm. I got it. Well, I'll tell you. Simply head on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only thing that can move this podcast forward. And we really, 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 really want to move forward. I would love to stop calling this my fake job and just refer to it as my job. Yeah. I spend job time working on it. It should get job credit, right? Well, I think you just need to manifest that, Holly. You have to stop calling it your fake job now. Okay. Today that stops. This moment. Why is anybody going to support something that's fake? You're right. Guys, you're you're listening to history right now. Yeah. I'm changing this moment. Okay. Perfect. So, with good ratings and reviews come good opportunities. And with more opportunities comes more content. 
which is after all what I think everybody really wants, isn't it? Yeah. More that, of us. More I mean, of us. We're delightful. <laughs> yeah. What more content can we do that doesn't require 87 hours of research? If you have any ideas, let me know and I'll do it. Cool. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do it. That's right. We'll both do it. Yeah. Get in there. But if you just can't wait like one more day or minute to have more We Would Be Dead in your life, you can support us over on Patreon. Patreon. I like when it's surprisingly basic. (laughs) There for just a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our entire catalog of 30-minute horror movies, our special mini-sodes, our weekly after-show post-mortem, which is available in both video and audio formats. Maybe you want to see our faces. Maybe you don't. Both are okay. We're not going to be mad if you don't want to watch a video. It's fine. Right. And if all of that is a little too much for you, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod. Anywhere and everywhere you get your content, you can like our posts, uh, share our posts, like and share our posts, leave us a comment, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the guy who lives in his mom's basement that refers to himself as a warlock. What's his name? He's now a character in our neighborhood. Gavin. That's a good one. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Then your friends and Weird Basement Gavin can become fiends and we can all hang out together. I don't know if we want that or not. I don't know. We're going to get it, though. I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess it depends what he's doing down in the basement. I don't know. How old is Gavin? I I didn't say. I mean, I left it nebulous. Yeah. Gavin could be like like, 19, which is normal, or he could be like 35. Right, right. Gavin. I don't know. It's like it was probably so cool for him to have that room down in the basement. Yeah, he ducked it out with Christmas lights and yeah, stuff. But now it's not so no, cool. Less it's cool. also where like the washer and dryer is, so his mom always has to come downstairs. And it's like loud when they're on. She's like, Mom, get out of here. He brings girls back to it and they're like, No. Yeah. I gotta go. Yeah. I'm thinking of Robbie Hart now. Oh. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, we might want to hang out with him, though. That's fine. That would be fine. Yeah. 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 Lastly, don't forget to be on the lookout for more information on our October 30th live show at Cape May Brewing Company. Yay! There will be costumes. There will be an excellent case. Could be anything at this point, but it's going to be excellent. There will be spooky Halloween vibes. And of course, there will be beer. And hopefully, there will also be you. So come celebrate the spookiest time of the year with us. Because, like, that's the best idea. We're the most fun. And we're spooky. So do we it. We really are. Yeah. Yeah, we're delightful. And, like, with all the validation. By then we'll be looking really good. And even if we don't, it's Halloween. We could look however we want. Yeah. Although our costumes, we probably have to look good. Right. You right. guys should know we have very good costumes planned. Yeah. <laughs> like, really I have, um, I also have some notch. really good VIP ticket gifts Ooh. this year. Ooh, more on that later. Yeah. Very excited. Make sure you keep an eye out for that. We will be selling our VIF passes, which come with a cool mystery special gift and other fun mm-hmm. advantages. Um, and it'll I be a say good time. VIP, but on it, VIF, sorry, yes. VIF packages, but honestly, it's just anybody that comes that pays for the, anybody can get a VIF. That makes you a very important fee. It's just buying it before you come. Exactly. So do that. Get fun stuff. Yeah, I promise. It'll be great. And I think that is all I have for this week. Leslie, do you have anything to add before we begin? So, like, I don't. Um, All right, then. 
on with the show. September 19, 1972 was a warm, humid, and cloudy day in Springfield, New Jersey. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. Warm, humid, and cloudy. That is a day in Jersey. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I have next. This is nothing new for locals. <laughs> that's our life. Sorry. Yeah. So even though it came with the promise of fall, September was usually hot. Oh, and for those of you who enjoyed the opening this week, um, the moon at this point is in waxing gibbous. By 11 that morning, it was already approaching 80 degrees. So you know it's gross if at 11 o'clock in the morning, right, it's 80 degrees. No, thank you. 47-year-old Grace Trison had let her dog out of her apartment on Wilson Road to take himself for a little run. So this is somebody who can just open the back door and let her dog, like, just go. Not in the fenced-in backyard, like, go, like a cat which blows my mind, but apparently this is something that, like, that was common for her and her dog. The neighborhood was safe, um, and in places it was wooded, so the dog would just, like, run into the woods for a while and then come back. I don't know. I guess it never was a problem before. Plus, it was sticky out, and the mosquitoes were likely at peak annoying, so I get it, Grace. You don't want to take a walk. I probably wouldn't either. Oh, and it was a big dog. So like hawks are not going to steal it or something. Right. Yeah. It was probably trained well just to go out and come back. Probably. I would just be a nervous wreck. But yeah. I, I mean, other people have other lives. Well, that's why you have a small dog. Exactly. <laughs> the dog had been out for a little while and Grace noticed it um, out her back door. Like she looked out the window in her back door and saw it trotting happily back towards her door. So the dog's coming back. Yay. But it had something in his mouth. Oh, no. Yeah. And as it got closer, it appeared to be... A large bone? She thought, is this like a really big bone that it's bringing back? Now, guys, there are deer everywhere in New Jersey. And not just living deer, but also dead deer. If there are hunters in your area, they will leave a gutted deer on the side of the road. They're, it's not uncommon. So my first thought, if I were her, would have been that my dog found a carcass. I would yeah. have been like, ah, shit, found like a roadkill or something. That's pretty gross. And I would have been annoyed, but not necessarily scared. Yeah. I'd have been like, oh, this is going to be gross. Grace cautiously peered at the dog. She's like walking outside. Like, I can't let it in with this thing. I got to like meet it in the front yard. But when it came closer, she noticed that this mysterious bone wasn't just a bone. And it wasn't a piece of a deer because it had fingers. Ooh. Mm-hmm. With nail polish on them. It was a leathery, sun-dried human arm. Oh my god. Yeah. The dog dropped it in the grass, sat down, and smiled at her. Like, I did it! Oh boy. <laughs> Grace screamed. Yeah. Obviously. Then hauled the dog back inside and called the damn cops. She did not pass right the fuck out, for which she should be given, at the very least, some kind of award. <laughs> I would have hit the floor. I've been like, nope, sorry. God. So she calls the cops and they send others like, I'm going to send a patrolman out. Officer Don Schwert was sent to Grace's home at the, I have such a hard time pronouncing this word, you guys, Baltusrol Gardens Apartment Complex. I don't know why that word foils me every time, but it does. Hmm. An officer who thought this was going to be some kind of misguided prank. So he was probably like, this is a, for sure a joke. Who finds an arm? Really? Right. Yeah. That's wild. But it wasn't. Grace actually did find an arm. Officer Schwert knew right away when he saw it that it was the real thing. He looks at it and was like, okay, not funny. It was shrunken and 
um, weather damaged. So like the sun had obviously been on it for a while and that's why it was kind of like raisiny looking. But it was an arm complete with hand and fingernails. So this was definitely no joke. Springfield was not exactly the kind of town where one could just find missing limbs lying around all the time. I don't know what town that actually is, but I don't want to go there. Right. So the protocol for this kind of event was not super well established. This was undoubtedly a little outside of Officer Schwartz's expertise, but he did what he thought was best, which meant he took some photos of the arm lying there in the grass and then called some more cops. Good. Great. This would require backup. And I don't blame him. If I rolled up on an arm, I'd be like, I need some other people. Patrolman Edward Kish and Dominic Olivo were the first to respond. They agreed that, yep, it sure was an arm. A forearm, to be precise, as it ended at about the elbow joint, and it was the real McCoy. They also had a sneaking suspicion that it could belong to a 16-year-old girl named Jeanette De Palma, who had gone missing six weeks prior. Because they didn't really have a lot of unexplained absences in Springfield at that point in time. They're like, there's a couple, and this is the one that fits the bill. So, makes sense. Jeanette's file listed her as a runaway. Yeah, sounds about right. Yep. If you are a longtime listener here at We Would Be Dead, you uh, wouldn't have expected anything less, really. But this simply meant that law enforcement suspected she left willingly and not under duress. It did not mean that it went well for her. And even though the world is a terrifying place for young girls on their own, law enforcement has historically not done a whole lot to find the ones who they think have entered it before their time. They made their bed, they can lie in it. Usually face down in a ditch. And this instance would rapidly be revealing itself as part of the rule, not an exception. What they knew offhand of Jeanette, besides the fact that she ran away, was that she was 16 years old, slender with dark hair and dark eyes, and that she had disappeared wearing tan pants, a light blue t-shirt, and light brown sandals. She carried a purse with her and wore a gold cross around her neck. But at this point, all we really have is an arm and a hunch. Not like like the Quasimodo kind. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? I got that. Good. It's <laughs> like, I wrote that. I'm like, oh, no, it could be attached to a hunch. That's a very different story. Oh, boy. That's a lot. Yeah. A strong dog. Mm-hmm. Now, an arm does not just, like, exist on its own. There isn't, like, an arm tree that you can pick one from. Right. Where there's arm, there is, hopefully, rest of a person, right? And you want to hope that the rest is alive, but that's not very likely in this case. The arm was small, and the fingernails had polish on them. It was likely that they were looking for a girl, is what they figured. Mm -hmm. 1972 was a different time, and this kind of assumption was very common then. It's best not to dwell. The dog had been let out for a small amount of time. Grace told the patrolman that she had returned home from grocery shopping a short time before and let the dog out for a run while she put her things away. A dog of that size could only get so far before turning around to come home in that amount of time. So there was a very good chance that if the arm was taken from the rest of the body by this dog, it would be pretty close by. Because we're talking about like a closed window of time. He yeah. couldn't have gotten to like the next county. Right. So now it was time to search. The patrolmen who had responded to the call were sent back about their business. So these guys respond, they, they find this arm, and then they're like, okay, we're going to send in some detectives. You guys go finish your shift, which I'm sure all cops love. Yeah. Because Springfield's chief of police kind of checked in at this point in time and said, listen, I have, to, I have to round up a team. Okay, fine. So he rounds up detectives and they brought with them another dog because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I would have just taken the first dog along for the ride. 
He already knew where the arms owner was, so maybe he tried to go back for more. Yeah. yeah. I would have definitely let that dog out again and followed it, but mm-hmm. nobody asked me. So oh, that's so weird. Rude. So he stayed home. And even though the local police still had a job to do, any of them who were available came to the aid to search, which included the patrolmen who were originally on the call. So as soon as their shift was over, they they went and joined the search. And any officers who were on duty but did not have an assignment also went. Okay. So it was kind of like, whenever you can, come help us. And they did. There were certainly no lack of places for a body to be hidden in this area. As I mentioned, there were woods, but also a few abandoned structures and the construction site of a new highway, which is like a lot of little weird pockets and stuff, you know. And perhaps the most ominous was the Hudai Quarry, which was very close to where the arm had turned up. So this is also extremely close to this apartment area. Hudai is a 120-acre rock quarry, and in 1972, it was still very much in active use. Hmm. They were digging out rocks and stuff. It borders the northern edge of the Baltusrol Golf Club. Today, it is bisected by Interstate 78, which I don't know if it was there in 1972. That might be a newer one. Hudai Quarry is also directly east of the Wachung Reservation and touches the summit border as well as Hidden Valley Park, which I wonder if ranch dressing hangs out there. Delightful. Delicious. Yes. The quarry is also sometimes called the Grand Canyon of Union County. Okay. By whom I do not know. Union County. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Union County is like, it's our Grand Canyon. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody comes see, but you can't go in. It's not open to the public. You know, that was like a Leslie Nope in Aww. coming up with that. <laughs> and that would be her luck too. You can't go in and look at it, but trust me, it's yeah. there. Oh, <laughs> I'm sad for it now. Much of the quarry was untouched by humans and actually remains that way. This is a pretty like wildernessy area. So there was an abundance of vegetation and wildlife. Wildlife that included a number of birds of prey, vultures, coyotes, weasels, foxes, and the occasional bobcat. Mm, a lot of animals. You might recognize most of these animals as predators, but they are also carrion eaters, which means they will scavenge and eat any dead animal they find, including human beings. Given the heat and humidity of a Jersey summer and the presence of abundant carrion-eating species, it is not likely that a body found in the quarry would be in great condition. That is, if there was anything left of it at all, which, of course, makes it like a great place to hide a body. Right. Don't go hide your bodies there. That's, this is not a recommendation. No. The quarry is scenic enough, I guess, but it's also treacherous and full of equipment, and therefore it's closed to the public. I should mention that beyond the rocks, animals, and rugged terrain, the land of the quarry was not tended to, which is part of the beauty of its ecosystem. This means that if a tree falls in the woods, it stays there. No one's coming down and picking up branches. Right. Everything just is where it is. Mm -hmm. In an area where saplings and parasitic vines are allowed to grow wild and free, you're going to have a positively biblical amount of logs, fallen trees, and branches, and other things on the ground. So the whole place is really a nonstop tripping hazard. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want us, and we should listen to it and stay away. Yeah. We never listen. (laughs) Ever. I do. You, you do. You're a very good listener. You'd be like, I'm not going in there. That's terrible. Yeah. 
It said not to. I'd be like, there's probably animals. No good. <laughs> be like, not the animals I want. No, that's true. <laughs> Even with the whole forest of red flags, there certainly were people who went into Hudai Quarry that shouldn't have. But they weren't often up to anything upstanding or helpful. Yeah. The local police actually used part of the quarry as a shooting range. Okay. I don't know how legal that was, but it was the police doing it, so nobody argued. Um, Homeless people would set up camps deep in the hills. Kids would sneak in, too, because kids sneak in everywhere, but mostly they um, are there to explore or just because they're not supposed to be. They're like rodents. (laughs) Just scrambling towards things. (laughs) Finding little holes to get into stuff. (laughs) Get out of your little hidey hole. So armed with all of this information, if I were looking for a body or a missing girl in that place and time, I would absolutely start there. It'd be the first place I went. Yeah. And officers made it there eventually after the other half of the arm was found on its perimeter. Mm. The arm had likely disconnected and dropped off while being carried by the dog. So not much was left holding the elbow joint together. So it just kind of flopped off. That's not a huge surprise. This would have been another long bone, though. Like, it's a humerus. So it's the big from shoulder to elbow bone that they found out right outside the quarry. Okay. And where was the rest of the arm at this point? You know, the first part they found? Yeah. Why, in a cardboard box, of course. Okay. The most forensically sound vessel for biological material out there. Was it lined with plastic? Of course not. Did anyone use gloves when handling it? Who knows? The arm took a trip back to the station where it was unceremoniously placed in the only refrigerating unit in the building, the fridge in the break room. Ew. You know, next to... You gotta do what you gotta do, I guess. Next to lunchboxes and yogurt cups. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing great, folks. Just remember that it may not have been a great time for forensic science, but the rattan furniture was on point. Mm. Back to the quarry. Shortly after law enforcement found the remainder of the arm, another discovery was made. Deep in the quarry, swimming in a bright green sea of slender birch trees and wild blueberry bushes, lies a harsh outcropping of rocks. The rocks form a sinister-looking platform situated high above the forest floor. The spot is known to locals as the Devil's Teeth for its eerie resemblance to a fleshless human mandible. So... Good things probably happened there. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> Pretty positive, sunny place. Wait, so this is located within the in area the that you're not supposed to go yeah. to? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's behind like the quarry. Okay. There's no wall, but it's like, I think there's a fence actually. I think there's a chain yeah. link. So it's in the confines of the property. But like I said, like kids sneak in there. So they'd be who calls it that and who yeah. goes in there. Ugh, my friends totally would have snuck in there and... I, of course, would have gone and hated every second of it. Yeah, you... Uh, I don't know if you would have hated it if it was in the daytime. It looks pretty in the daytime. Well, yeah, but I would have just... I was always concerned about, like, ticks and other things. Oh, then you would have hated it. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of just brush. Just, and yeah. it, like I said, there's no, like, carved paths once right. you get into a certain point. You're just wading through brush. Mm-hmm. So it's not great. Also, you would have gotten in trouble if you got caught. Yeah. So noticing this bizarre natural structure that vaguely resembles an altar, officers decide they should maybe take a look up there. Mm. But it's no small feat to do that. The path, if you can even call it that, leading up the side of the hill to the outcropping, 
is steep and littered with natural debris and exposed root systems. It's something between a hike and a climb to make it to the top. And these are local police, not like jacked up state troopers. They're just like Johnny Law walking around on his beat or whatever. Yeah, like Kirsten's dad just heading up the street. There you <laughs> go. Heading up the hill. <laughs> Perfect. So these guys were certainly breaking a sweat to do this. But in the end, it was all worth it. There at the top of the hill, tucked among the logs and fallen tree limbs, was the body of a young girl wearing a light blue t-shirt and tan pants. Her brown flip-flops lay near her on the ground, as did a pile of small items that looked to be the contents of a purse. So this is like makeup and tissues and um, like a little mirror and a bottle of cold medicine, just stuff that you would have kept in your handbag, but the purse is not there, just the stuff. Officers knew right away that they had found Jeanette De Palma and she was missing an arm. So looks like we've solved all of the problems of the day, right? Mm. It's time to pack it in. But this was not enough for formal identification, but it was pretty obvious to everybody there what was going on. I mean, you still need to be like, we had these tests, we confirmed who this is, but they looked at her with the clothes and they were like, oh, that's her. Right. Side note, I'm giving you guys an insane amount of detailed description right now because later all of it is coming into play. So um, some of the things that people suggest would be possible in this area, if you know everything about it, are laughable. So I just wanted to like arm you guys all with information. Thank you. You're very welcome. So the scene was certainly eerie, but it wasn't messy. There's no blood, no weapons, no sign of struggle, and her clothing was completely intact, not so much as like a rip in her shirt. Hmm. One officer said that it looked as though she had just laid down and fallen asleep and didn't wake up. Hmm. This one officer was like, you know, if you didn't really like look too hard at the way her, like she's almost skeletonized, you, it looks like you could just go like shake her and she would get up. Oh, yeah. Uncomfortable. I know that's unsettling, right? This is not to say that it was necessarily a gentle death that this girl suffered. It's just the way the scene looks from the outside. The body was face down on the ground and decomposed down to the skeleton in many places. Ooh. Yeah. Given the heat, rain, soil alkalinity, and the presence of scavengers and insects, it's easy to piece together why the body was in the state it was in. Mm-hmm. But the scene is still extremely curious for a number of reasons. First, there was no evidence that another person had been on that cliff at all. There's just nothing that would indicate any other human beings. I mean, it's been up there a long time, right. most likely, but they don't see any footprints or any stuff left behind, just her. And second, this was a 16-year-old girl who had been missing for six weeks with no known prior health conditions and no obvious cause of death. What the hell happened to her? And if she had been so close this whole time, because Hudai Quarry is just three miles from Jeanette's home, that is an easily walkable distance. Why had it taken them so long to find her? It's a missing girl. Why didn't didn't you go out to that quarry right away? You'd think maybe she got out there and couldn't find her way back out or something. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would think. Like, we can think back to, like, authorities looking for Megan Kanka. They went they went everywhere to see if, okay, maybe she hid somewhere and she couldn't get out. I, I realize Jeanette's a little older, but still, like, this is the, this is wilderness. Maybe she broke her ankle and you would have found her. Right. Or just the fact that she is a teenager. Yeah. And this is where teenagers might go. Not this particular place, but they do suspect that later. But they, they didn't even look, mm. which drives me crazy. Three miles away from her house, 
this big wooded area you didn't even check. Okay. So then once they find her, officers immediately try to fill in the gaps themselves. A dangerous habit and a surefire mark of defensiveness, if you ask me. But you didn't. Well, maybe you did. You guys are here, but other people didn't. One officer immediately decided that this was a drug overdose. He's like, oh, she overdosed. Case closed. Uh, no. How <laughs> do you know that at all? Yeah. It's not like she has like needles all over her arms or something. Nothing. Yeah. Another wondered if maybe this was like a secret party spot or a hangout that went wrong. Mm-hmm. Which like little more logical, but still you don't know that either. Right, and there's no other footprints or No, nothing. No no cups or like beer cans or indications that people were up there. Just nothing. Right. It was not a telling crime scene. And in the six weeks since her disappearance, the police had uncovered little to no leads on where Jeanette had gone and why. They had been satisfied that she was out in the world somewhere. Another runaway who thought she didn't need anyone and was content to let her family worry. But the problem is, as it is in so many other cases, that this simply wasn't Jeanette. For whatever reason, the phrase, my child would never do this, is not something law enforcement ever takes into account. Right. They're like, oh, we wouldn't know much better. She definitely ran away. And then OD'd. Done. I hate it. One officer on the scene noticed that the arrangement of the logs surrounding Jeanette's body looked as though it formed a makeshift coffin. And the two logs above her head looked as though they formed a cross. A halo of stones surrounded her head, and on the ground around her lie hundreds of tiny crosses made of sticks. Suddenly, what happened to Jeanette didn't seem so mysterious anymore. This wasn't a random tragedy. It was witchcraft. Oh. I know. Now, to me, these things alone, if they were presented like this, do not a witch hunt make. That's like some natural stuff out there. But we're not in 2022 staring at a glowing box containing the answer to every question in the universe. We're in 1972, where everything you know has to come from other people or the library. And in an area of New Jersey that is feeling particularly sensitive to the occult and its possible dangers. Yeah. So why are they feeling sensitive to the occult and its possible dangers, you ask? Yeah, I was wondering. You ask so much. Well, fun fact. I have been secretly preparing you all for this moment for weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm very sneaky. As it so happened, the List family killings had occurred just 10 months prior to this in a house that was 4.4 miles and 10 minutes by car from the very spot they were standing on. John List, in case you can't remember, is the man from New Jersey who killed his entire family in their Westfield mansion. And then he ran away from the law for a very long time. John's daughter, Patty, had been interested in the occult. Remember, she liked Ouija boards and was going through her witch phase. Right. And this became a sort of fascination for the public for both its strangeness and stark contrast to her father's extreme Christian devotion. If we want to zoom out a little bit, the Manson family killings had happened just three years prior to this in 1969. William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, had been published in 1971, which Mm. is just a year before, Rosemary's Baby, the film, was released in 1968, and Anton LaVey published The Satanic Bible in 1969. Of course, it was 69. (laughs) He was just holding on to it. He totally was. Yeah. I could publish in 67, but it's much better now that it's 69. I missed 1666, so it has to be. (laughs) Exactly. 1969. (laughs) 
And in response to all of this, Christian <gasps> churches, yes. But then if you turn the nines upside down, six, six, six. Code. It's a conspiracy. Yeah. You cracked the code. I did it. Well done. So in response to all of this Satan code stuff, Christian churches had really turned up the dial when it came to like resisting Satan. They got the resistance. <laughs> exactly. They were really like pressuring, not pressuring. They were really like drilling this in at their sermons. Like you have to resist Satan. He's around every corner. Yes. They still do that today. I guess they do. But they were especially harsh when they were doing this to their youth outreach department. So they really wanted oh, yeah. kids to not be Sataning it up. That's who you go after. I guess. And if all that wasn't enough, Jeanette De Palma wasn't the first young woman to turn up dead with no explanation as to how or why it happened in that area as of late. Which we'll get to in part two, but there are like a bunch of other dead girls in that area. Yeah. The devil had entered the chat and now someone else was dead. Hmm. To add even more insult to satanic injury, the towns we talk about in this episode and the quarry we're all a stone's throw away. Get what I did there? Stone's mm-hmm. throw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From the Wachung Reservation, a place that had long been the source of a ton of gossip about devil worship and cults and sacrifices and general fodder for scary stories of all kind. But I'm going to take a little break for a minute and let Leslie tell you all about it. Oh, well, thank you, Holly. You're so welcome. I actually know quite a bit. I thought, like, in my head, I was like, Leslie probably knows something about this. And it's pronounced Wachung? How do you pronounce uh, it? That's just how I didn't really do any research. But I was, thought it was Wachung. Wachung? That's how okay. I pronounced it, yeah. Okay. I, I didn't so do any guides. <laughs> <laughs> the Wachung Reservation is the largest of 36 Union County parks that encompass 6,200 acres. That's a lot. Yeah. Holy moly. This park is bounded by the city of Summit, the borough of Mountainside, and the townships of Berkeley Heights, Scotch Plains, and Springfield. The reservation includes the following features, multi-use path, nature trail, playground, restrooms, Wi-Fi, as of today, not in 1972, (laughs) uh, fishing, canoeing, kayaking, a picnic area, which is reservable, and a Bridal trail, which means it's acceptable for horseback riding. Not for brides. No. You can bring Mm -hmm. your horse, but don't bring your bride. I wanted to say brittle, but it's probably bridal. It's bridal. Okay. Mm -hmm. The Watchung Reservation History Trail is a six-mile trail that visits and identifies sites of historic interest in Union County's Watchung Reservation, a 2,000-plus acre preserve located in the northern portion of the county. The stops along the History Trail recall features from the early years of the Watchung Reservation or describes uses of the land before it was incorporated into the park. I would love this trail. I know. It's such a nerdy it's thing so to do, cool. but I'd be like, history and a hike? Yeah. Please. So here's a little history and folklore of the area. Please. Deep in the woods of the Watchung Reservation mm-hmm. is a site with a cluster of mostly abandoned houses dating back to the mid-19th century known locally as the Deserted Village. Ooh, that's cryptic. This village is located down a narrow, winding road that leads into the forests of the town of Berkeley Heights. In 1736, Peter Wilcox, an Englishman from Long Island, New York, was the first to settle in the area and opened a sawmill. 
He lived there till his death, and you will find his grave in a small graveyard in the woods atop a high bluff. Well, that's like Batstow. Yeah. Batstow was also a sawmill. Yep. Very similar. After Wilcox's death, his heirs sold the land in 1844 to David Felt, a businessman from New York City. Felt built a mill on Blue Brook, two dams for a mill, and a little town that he called Feltville. Have <laughs> <laughs> to me. Yeah. <laughs> For the workers in the mill to live in. The town consisted of eight houses, a church, a general store, and a carriage house. It's a good little town. Yeah. This is very much like Batstow, though. That's so funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But 15 years later, he sold the property. Over the next two decades, several more business ventures popped up. But nothing seemed to stick in the small town, causing many to move out of their homes to find work elsewhere. And so Feltville was dubbed the deserted village. Hmm. Very similar to Batstow. Am I so like, funny? They it's... were like, oh, this just isn't working. We we should go. Right. They all like just abandoned Batstow too. This is very weird. Mm -hmm. It's just a New then, Jersey thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference here is that in Batstow, everyone deserted it. Yes. But here some people stayed. Oh, that's a very like piney yeah. notion. Then in 1882, Warren Ackerman bought the village and turned it into a summer resort called Glenside Park, which oh, would have been like so fun. Yeah. <laughs> right? I'm there for it. This sounds like it would have been a huge hit, but it wasn't. Aww. And the village was deserted again. I wonder why. Yeah, I think it just lasted for a couple years and like. It sounds didn't. nice. I know. Okay. Once Union County Park commissioned purchased the property, they included it as a part of the Wachachong Reservation and rented the houses to the families in need. So, like, all these business ventures tried to happen there. Nothing was working. Right. And the county was like, we'll just take it. It's fine. So it's cursed for sure. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Only three families remain as permanent residents, while the remainder of the site is open to visitors to learn about the area's history and to enjoy the natural surroundings. Oh, people still live there? Yeah. That's wild. Now, what would a mostly abandoned town in the middle of the woods be without a few creepy tales? Nothing. It would be nothing. Right. Luckily, we don't have to find out. Oh, thank God. It has been told that in 1912, Three young sisters set off to go camping deep in the woods and never returned. When families went to look for them, all they could find were their bonnets. Oh, no. Many people believe that this is what led to most of the town leaving the village for fear that they were too isolated and evil things were lurking in the woods. Yikes. Either way, parents would tell their children not to venture too deep into the woods without supervision. Nearby residents speculate the wooded area surrounding the deserted village, known locally as the Enchanted Forest, is where Satanists oh. and witch covens practice their rituals. I got all excited that it sounded like a pretty little fairy village, and yeah. then you just dumped all over that. I know. Rumor has it that the remnants of fires in the shape of perfectly designed circles with pagan stars and bloodstained sacrificial altars can be found in this area of the park. <gasps> There's just blood stained. Everywhere. Rocks I know. Everywhere. I heard the same thing. They're like, there's blood smeared on everything. Yeah. That can't be possible. Yeah. Many visitors, frequent and new, have shared their experiences of a sense of dread that comes over them while walking through the villages. Probably and all that forest blood. And felt though. <laughs> yeah. They're probably like, it was, there's a lot of blood about. I feel really it's nervous. Such a green place. It's so red. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, very nervous about yeah. all this. A colorblind person is just like, what's, what's everyone seeing? Yeah. It's just gray. I don't get it. 
you walk in the woods, you get the yeah. sense of dread. There's temperature changes. Ooh. You know, like when the dogs bark madly in thin air and you're like, what are they barking No. At? Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. And then that feeling of like, I'm just not supposed to be here. Is Ooh, like I don't like that either. You. Yeah. Ooh. So this is like something that a lot of people say about it. Mm. And yeah, that dog barking one just like always I gets me. I don't like me. that. Because I, so we've, my Your dog, dog that barks I into the abyss. Yeah. So not, not my current dog, Belle. But she does, she does do that. Though. She does do that. Um, we took my uh, since past dog, oh, Titan. Titan, okay, to Higby's Beach. Oh, where it's spooky. It's spooky, and it's supposed to be haunted down there too. And usually, they say at dusk is when things weirdly start to happen. The naked ghosts come out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Higby Beach used to be a nude beach for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So some people, it still is. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we would take Titan down there and walk the path, but there were a couple times where he would just stop, like dead oh, stop, yeah. and would just like look out into the woods and just sometimes would bark, but then get real quiet, like he was like hunting, and you couldn't take him any further. And Ooh. he just was like, "No, either we're going back to the car, or we're staying right here." And Titan he would was do, a big dog too, so yeah. like. He, he would a, pull you. Yeah, he was an Australian shepherd. Not like what, like my dog refusing to move, who you could just pull through wherever right. you wanted yeah. to go. Titan so was, was not like, moving. Yeah, he was like, nope, we're going back. Wow. And we're like, okay. Ugh. So I, I always think about that. I'm like, ooh, so creepy. That is super creepy. Yeah. And the only other really terrifying story associated with this area is the one we're telling today. So oh, there's so Jeanette's. Yeah, okay. she's one of the the main ones. And the one that would be associated, as we'll probably get more into, with any Satanists yeah. and ritual things. Yeah. But yeah. So other than that, the area seems really cool and I would love to visit. Yeah, me too. The trail is a loop and is about 1.7 miles long. So there's a couple of different That's trails. A good but like for this a trail. one is, yeah, 1.7 miles long with places to stop and take in a view or have a rest. The park is open from dusk to dawn every day. And we can go through the deserted village, but the homes of those who still live there is on private property. Okay. And it looked like those houses were just like right next to each other. So it's probably easy to tell. (sighs) And something I found very interesting, 10 historic buildings still survive, some of which are inhabited as we know, but people actually rent the dilapidated structures from the county and promise to restore them and maintain them. And there is a long wait list of people who wish to live there. And I feel like we need to get on that list. I mean, if they did fix them up, it would be great. That sounds like a beautiful vacation home. I know. I'm trying to look at pictures of this. They all call it Beltville, which I love. Okay. Oh, they're more modern looking than I thought they were going to be. They don't look like ancient little cabins. They look like houses. Well, yeah, because I mean, they were they were built in like the late eighteen or like mid eighteen hundreds, I think. Right, but I I think that, and I think like really crumbled, like ghost town oh, crumbled. Oh no! And they're See, not. I'm so used to like okay, so growing growing up in Connecticut, all of our houses are like seventeen, eighteen hundreds. So right. I think of like our houses, and they just look like right. But those are also maintained homes. I think of yeah. a house from the eighteen hundreds being abandoned, and that that house is like yeah. But the ones at Batstow are like. Yeah, but these look more modern than mm-hmm. that. These look like somebody could have, like, there's, like, well, landscaping w- on them. Well, 
like I said, some people rent get, them yeah, and maintain right. and restore yeah, yeah. them. And then there's there are several families that still live there. This is wild looking. I want to go. Yeah. And we can. We, we can, can go to these. Go. I will, I'm going to want one of these houses, though. I know. They're so old and cool, and I'm going to want this big one I'm looking at right here. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right, North Jersey. Weigh in. Where are you? Can we come? Can we come look at these deserted houses? Are you going to come with us? What's happening? Because I want this one with all the boarded up green windows and the giant like arched porch. I want it a lot. Ooh, let's do it. Yeah, that's gonna be our house now. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that, Leslie. You're welcome. Again, this is important information to log. I'm giving you so much information in this episode, and then next episode, it's all going to come into play. So we're back to the quarry. There's a body in the quarry. Satan is having a real moment in time. The Wachung Reservation is right around the corner where people are just sacrificing things day and night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. According to local lore. Mm -hmm. And one officer on the scene of this crime says aloud that it looks like they've stumbled upon like a satanic ritual killing. Right. And if we've learned anything about satanic panic and witch hysteria, it is that there doesn't need to be an ounce of truth in the matter for it to happen. Mm -hmm. People just need to be scared and desperate for an explanation. Usually it's like a time wherein people, it's like unrest, there's unrest happening. And just why is something that's a common sentiment. Like, why is it like this? I need to know why. And so they latch on to this. What could be an explanation? Check and check. Yeah. So what now? The coroner arrives on the scene a few hours later to take care of the formalities. You kind of have to give like a formal death declare thing where they're like, yeah, she's dead. And with that, Jeanette's body was lifted out of the mouth of hell and taken to the medical examiner's office, or in this case, the morgue, which was in a local funeral home. Back then, mostly you would just take them straight to funeral homes. They didn't mm -hmm. have as much of the like scientific facilities we have now. Right. And there, Jeanette was identified by, wait for it, her own local dentist. Nice. Which blows my mind. This is the guy that worked down the street in a dentist's office, and he was relatively new in his field. He was not into any kind of forensics. So, like, I imagine the guy's just kind of like, oh, I specialize in pediatric dentistry. Nothing creepy here. And then the cops come in like, oh, yeah, come here. You have to hold this skull. Ugh. You don't anticipate that ever, I imagine, in dental school, unless you're a forensic odontologist. But right. forensic dentistry, or as I just said, it is professionally known, forensic odontology is a nuanced specialty. And it's really important. A lot of times um, bodies are identified by dental records. Right. That's a big mm -hmm. thing. But it's also a specialty that has grown consistently over the years and proven invaluable to its field. But it, of course, didn't start off that way. It usually isn't practiced by the guy who gives the local kindergartners silver caps after they fall off a swing. Yeah. That's not your forensic odontologist. Nevertheless, this dentist came in and identified a few fillings he had done for Jeanette earlier that summer, and he realized it was her all right. Teeth, like Shakira's hips, don't lie. Yes, Shakira. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd like that one. So then there is an autopsy carried out by a man who seems to be tantamount to a, a country doctor. Now, this is, again, according to other officers and stuff. I don't have this man's biography. I know that 
other officer said he was like a local doctor. They're like, he doesn't have a forensic anthropology pedigree. He's a guy that is a doctor and therefore can carry out these procedures. Mm-hmm. So he will. Now, whether this is true or false, I can't be sure. But what I can tell you is that in 1972, forensic anthropology was not at all what it is today. In fact, 1972 was the first year forensic anthropology was actually recognized as a discipline. Before that, it was, again, just the coroner doing stuff. This is the first year it's a science. The doctor looked at the remains, did as much of a standard issue autopsy as he could. Now, remember, this is a mostly skeletonized remains. Like, it's not, there isn't a lot there to work with. So he couldn't really do too much. Then he sent off a piece of Jeanette's scalp to toxicology. But the request for narcotic and barbiturate testing on the form was crossed out. Hmm. Yeah, which is strange considering there were already cops whispering drug overdose at like every corner. Right. But you're not going to test her for drugs. And some of these cops weren't even whispering. They're they're pretty loud about it. Now, I don't know why this testing isn't considered. But what I do know is that both barbiturates and narcotics only live in a human body post-mortem for a maximum of four to six weeks. And given that we have passed that point with Jeanette, perhaps the county simply believed that any efforts to test for them would be fruitless, even if they had been in her system at one point in time, and they didn't want to put in the extra time, effort, and money for something that just was never going to yield results. Hmm. That feels to me like a bad decision. Because you should just check, especially if everyone's saying she overdosed. Yeah. But they didn't. Maybe they didn't want the testing because it was a little sketchy. And a definitive no on the drug in her system question would ruin their easiest and safest theory. This part I don't get, though, because because of the timing of it, even if they wanted that to still be the answer, they mm-hmm. still could have made the excuse of like, yeah. well, we didn't find anything because it had been this long. And yeah. there's a chance that all of that could be out of the hair follicle or whatever. I think it was probably at that point time and money just because, again, it's 1972 and a tuck screen on like a piece of scalp and hair was mm-hmm. probably m- more effort than it is now. Yeah. I imagine at least. Yeah. And perhaps more expensive. Yeah. And I don't know what their budget was like for that kind of thing. It might not have included that. So um, also, so before you continue on that, just sure. because we mentioned the um, like for a forensic lab, mm-hmm. I just Googled where the where when New Jersey got its first forensic lab. Uh oh. And it's Union County in 1972. <gasps> Get out, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they went to Sullivan's funeral home, yeah. and not this. <laughs> so I actually, I just wonder if it like popped wow. up either right after this yeah. or during this. But like they specifically test for controlled substances. <gasps> they like they have a controlled substance section. Well, they did and send off stuff. Section. Maybe they sent it there. Yeah. So the yeah the controlled substance. The Controlled Substances section provides analysis of illicit drugs to support narcotics investigations and prosecutions, and the Forensic Laboratory is designed by the state of New Jersey to certify drug analysis, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it was... It's in Union County! The laboratory was established in 1972 as the first county prosecutor's lab in New Jersey. Wow! So many near misses in this, too. So much like, oh, you could have done more, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. 
Oh boy. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. That is very interesting. Because I really I wonder if it was either being set up mm-hmm. or set up almost immediately after this. Like this is what we needed. Or maybe it was there and that's where they sent the samples, but like it right. wasn't oh, established right. enough. They did send yeah, samples. they did send samples, yeah. but they didn't bring the body there. They mm-hmm. just were like, test her scalp. Right. Now we have, you know, like morgues with the, the city or our county medical mm-hmm. examiner where you do these things, but like right. Back then, you went to a funeral home, and that's yeah. just, they did it there. Right, so, and that still could have been the protocol. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, that's very interesting, though. Eventually, it was decided that the only plausible cause of death, in the absence of any other evidence in this case, would have been strangulation. We've seen this before. Strangulation and suffocation are very commonly applied as the cause of death in murder cases with no other obvious option. And honestly, they're usually right. Usually in the absence of any kind of evidence of something else, yeah, you can say this person was strangled or suffocated. But it doesn't, this answer doesn't fit with any of the narratives law enforcement will go on to suggest. So I'm very curious as to why they just landed on that and then never went back to it. Yeah. But we'll get to all of those in the next part. So first, let's talk a little bit about Jeanette. Okay. If you ask the police at the time what they thought of Jeanette, you'd get a lot of mixed reviews. Some said they heard she was wild and rebellious, but weren't sure really what that referred to. Some said she was just like a pretty average kid. Nice kid, normal teen, whatever. Some said she was trouble, a tough kid from a tough family who likely just ran away. And some, well, one, namely Patrolman Ed Kish, had way more specific things to say. Quote, back at the station, we used to call Jeanette party girl, Kish recalls. I can recall quite a few instances where I had to pull that kid out of the backseat of some guy's car over at Bryant Park. This is a quotation from Death on the Devil's Teeth, just in case you need to know. And he really said that with that much authority. But here's the problem. No other officers, not a one at the time, have any recollection of calling Jeanette party girl. There is no record of her being pulled out of cars and none of her friends say she was ever in Bryant Park. Oh, okay. Right. This is something, again, that he really says with a ton of authority. When pressed on the matter and asked where, if all this trouble happened, Jeanette's arrest records were, where's the paperwork, right? Yeah. You're a cop, where's the paperwork? Officer Kish said, quote, look, she may not have had any formal complaints signed against her, but she was far from a good kid. Del Tompkins had to be up at that house several times in reference to her. I don't believe that there had been serious juvenile matters, but I do believe there was a reference card on her. Uh, There wasn't, and no one had ever been up to her house because of a complaint about her. Interesting. Not once. So why would he say this? Oh, we'll get there. But here that statement is, nonetheless, without so much as an alleged. Like, he's saying, like, this is true. Yeah. This is actually how most of the town spoke about Jeanette. They were certain that Jeanette was kind of a slutty teen who occasionally did drugs from a family with possible mafia ties. Mm -hmm. But they made all these assumptions based on idle gossip without knowing her personally at all. And we will not be doing that. So let's talk about Jeanette's reality. Jeanette Christine De Palma was born on August 3rd, 1956 in Jersey City, New Jersey to parents Salvador and Florence De Palma. So, um... Her 16th birthday was just like four days before she died. That's so sad. It's really sad. 
The De Palmas were a big family. Jeanette was one of eight. She had four sisters and three brothers. The girls, Jeanette, Cindy, Gwendolyn, and Darlene, all had the same dark hair and dark eyes. In 1966, the De Palmas moved into their house on 4 Clearview Avenue in Springfield. The house is a beautiful five-bedroom split level in what at the time was a seriously up-and-coming neighborhood. And now, this house is still there, by the way. It's it's um, estimated on Zillow at like $850,000. Okay. Because that area, we talked about this in our episode on John List. The houses are worth an insane sum of money yeah. there. And this one, it looks like a little split level on the outside, but the inside is beautiful. You can find it easily and look at all the all the specs. It's for Clearview Avenue. So, again, if you want more on that area, just listen to our John List episode again. I tell you everything about it. But the De Palmas were not from Springfield. And so when they arrived in its insulated and mostly wealthy community, the people there were immediately on guard. Like the, right away, they don't like newcomers entirely. Nobody knew the De Palmas at the time, but they also didn't like them. And they didn't do themselves a whole lot of favors. A seemingly religious family, the De Palmas were not hugely social in and around the neighborhood. And at that time, uh, coupled with their last name, this made some neighbors think that they had mafia ties, which is a crazy leap to make because no one on earth is more social than a Jersey family with mafia ties. I know. Anybody you, well, if you live in New Jersey, you know somebody with mafia ties. Yeah. I'm sorry, you just do. They are like the most gregarious people with the most ostentatious house on the block. Absolutely. They would have been inviting everyone over. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And their house wouldn't have just looked like a little split level. They would have been like, we should put a fountain in. Yes. It's not. It's a very different thing. So to me, I'm like, they're not mafia. But I guess people thought that. It will also come as no surprise to anyone else who comes from a large Italian New Jersey family with or without mafia ties that the De Palmas were not without their own drama. They're passionate people. Mm. Sal and Florence were prone to explosive arguments that the police frequently were called to the house to respond to. So, oh wow, Ed Kish said the cops went to the house for Jeanette. They didn't, but they did come to the house a few times for their parents. Mm. Right. There's a lot of information he says is directly about Jeanette that is clearly about somebody else. Yeah. So this is just the beginning of a trend. With eight children under one roof, wow, there was also bound to be a few that found some trouble. You're not going to have eight kids and have none of them hit the wrong crowd at some point in time. Mm -hmm. Jeanette's older sister Gwen found this in spades. Gwen did fall into the wrong crowd. She liked to party and stay out with boys and eventually do drugs. It was the drugs that led to a problem for Gwen, not that the other things were helpful, but in 1972, she was admitted to a 13-month inpatient treatment facility in another state to sort herself out. So this is an inpatient rehab for 13 months. Wow. That is a long time to be in rehab. Yeah. We are living in the era of like 28 days. Right. And a mandatory hold is only three. 13 months? That's over a year. That's wild. Wow. So she must have not been in a good place. Mm -hmm. And she was sent there in 1972? Yeah, she went there in 1972. So, so she wasn't around no, for her sister? No, she wasn't. Mm -mm. She was sad. away when it happened. Yeah. yeah. Super sad. Gwen also had a police record and a reputation that shed itself all over her younger sisters. 
So if you're talking about a De Palma girl who was pulled out of the backs of cars and arrested for partying by police, you're probably talking about that one. Yeah. The girls weren't saints by any means, but they were all, by accounts, normal teenagers, with the exception of Gwen. The rest of the girls just kind of lived their lives. They attended local high schools. They had friends. They dated boys. Occasionally, they smoked pot or drank a little alcohol. But in 1972, this was not even a little bit uncommon. Jeanette's friends remember her as a quiet and serious girl who rarely smiled unless something was really funny. So they were like, she never smiled. She was just like serious face all the time. Hmm. But she was just like, just not funny. Whatever. (laughs) She had resting bitch face. Some of us have it. It's fine. (laughs) Totally fine. She was a pretty and kind girl. And she liked Janis Joplin and smoking the occasional joint. Don't we all? Yeah. Jeanette wore fashionable clothing and always had a full face of makeup, which also I understand. Her friends remember her always furiously trying to straighten her dark wavy hair, too. So this is an era like the early 70s where that center part, long, glossy hair is very popular. And if you don't have that, it's hard to attain. Yeah. And so everybody kind of worked and schemed different weird ways to get their Mm -hmm. hair to do that. And uh, her friends remember she did the, quote, toucan method, which is my... I wouldn't have been able to tell you this except for the fact that my mother did this in mm-hmm. the 70s. She used to roll her hair around orange juice cans, like orange juice concentrate, that can that it would yeah. come in. And they would just like pin it up in these big cans and leave it there wet until it dried. Yeah. So when you take it down, it's a little wavy. But for the most part, if you have kinky curls, they've straightened out. Yeah. So um, I just thought it was funny where they, they mentioned this briefly. And I was like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my mom is actually just four years older than Jeanette and spent her whole life just a few hours south of Springfield. Mm. So I see so much of this, of the culture that my mom describes in in her life and the photos of my mom at that age in the things that I have read and seen of Jeanette. It's a very weird little parallel. So my mom is also from like a big Jersey Italian family. With connections to the mafia? No. <laughs> we all have a little bit of a connection to the mafia, but yeah. it's fine. <laughs> um... Jeanette was pretty and did occasionally look for attention from boys, especially in the ones in like neighboring towns, like not the ones in my school, these boys from over there. But that's also not uncommon. No, she's 16. Yeah, exactly. And she's like, I like boys from another town. Yeah, that was me. Exactly. Well, you were very cool then. Good for you. Jeanette's best friend, Gail, remembers the two of them dating boys that they met at Echo Lake Park. Gail has remained positive since the day she found out that Jeanette was dead that there is no possible way Jeanette died of a drug overdose. It simply wasn't in her to do something like that. And also, um, it should be noted that Jeanette's, like, drug use, because there is a point in time when her, even her mother says, like, oh, she did drugs, but she found Jesus and she stopped the drugs. Which, like, you need to do better, Flo. You got to phrase things better, girl. Yeah. Um, But her drug use was occasional pot smoking, And her friends even went to put a finer point on that. And they said that she never even bought it herself. It was only when it was like passed to her in a social setting. Yeah. Which is hardly like serious drug addiction. I know. I just picture it as like once in a while she was with a group of people. Somebody was smoking. Yep. And she took like two hits and danced around to Janis Joplin. A hundred percent. Yes. And that happens like a handful of times over the course of like 15 and 16 years old. Yep. That's basically (laughs) it. Yeah. But everyone's like, oh, drug addict. I know. 
And for all her kindness, Jeanette also wasn't a pushover. And so she developed a reputation for being kind of a no-nonsense girl when it came down to it. Okay. People are like, well, she didn't suffer fools. She didn't take any bullshit, which is great. But it only indicates that she was scrappy, never cruel. There are no instances of her being, like, actually mean to anybody. Yeah. They're like, she just didn't like bullshit. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only reputation she earned. Jeanette was certainly called promiscuous, even though there was a ton, there wasn't a ton of evidence to back it up. They were like, oh, she's slutty. Oh, really? Like, tell me why. No, I can't. One of those things. Kids rarely need evidence, though, to gossip, and neither do adults for that matter. She was also called tough and hard, but so are a lot of girls that have resting bitch face. Yeah. And resting bitch face, I am not saying that you are a bitch. I'm saying your face just looks mad in its, like, default setting. Right. Yeah, just your straight face yeah. looks like... Doesn't mean you are mad. No. It just means you don't look happy all the time. I think people know what that is. Just in case. And now, it doesn't mean that she was any of those things. She could not have been mean or tough at all. It just means that she didn't make an effort to be palatable to all people at all times. That's hard to do. It is hard to do. And and kind of admirable. You you weren't like putting on any kind of airs. You're just or faces. You're just like, this is just me. You don't I don't need to please everyone else. I'm happy with myself. End of the day. So that's admirable, I think. But shyness and arrogance are not one and the same, but more often than not, they are confused for one another. A lot of times someone who just doesn't want to talk because they're shy is is like put in a place where people say they're stuck up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And sisters are also often confused for one another. So I don't think any of the stuff was precisely who Jeanette was. Right. The De Palmas were also a religious family. But instead of attending the Catholic Church, like most of the Jersey Italians I know, and to be clear, they did at one point in time, after they moved to Springfield, the De Palmas began attending the Evangel Church in Elizabeth. This, is, this church is like a mini mega church. It's very like, testify, yeah. scream for the Lord. There's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. And this church was led by a charismatic pastor by the name of James Tate, who thinks an awful lot of himself from what I can gather. Oh, for sure. Oh, boy, oh, boy. We'll talk about Pastor Tate in the next installment more. But um, Pastor Tate led and, and has continued to lead services until very recently filled with fire, brimstone, faith healing, and speaking in tongues. Dramatic. He was one of the pastors of the time who spread his word out into, like, the coffee houses, too, to try and connect with youths. Yeah. So he's like, I'm a cool guy. We can play guitar for Jesus. Ugh. He actually, no, it was really gross. He actually had a coffee house, um, which we'll talk more about next week, where people sometimes say Jeanette worked. That was like, where you come and rap about the Lord. I know. Oh, they still do this stuff. It's not. Okay. But Jeanette's friends remember her as kind, stylish, and fun. But I've read some really horrible things about Jeanette in researching this case. Things that have no basis in reality from people who never knew her. But her friends after she disappeared, missed her. And her family missed her. And her town was never the same after she died. The day Jeanette disappeared was an ordinary summer day, like any other summer day. Jeanette woke up and had breakfast at the table with her family. Her cousin Lisa had run away and apparently had been missing for a month. So I'm going to repeat that again. Her cousin had actually run away. Oh. Uh-huh. So if there's a member of her family that ran away, There it is. But no one had informed Jeanette of this. 
Her parents picked this morning over breakfast to actually tell her. And Jeanette was very upset when she heard about this. Lisa, as it turns out, actually did just run away too. She was, okay. nothing awful happened. She really did run away. And she did come home safely later. She was like one of the few people who actually did that. But again, these girls are not interchangeable. Let's not sew all their stories together and just make them all Jeanette. That's not what this is. Right. But it seems to be what happened. After breakfast, Jeanette spent some time in her room. And then she called her friend Gail at around 11 o'clock. She and Gail had made plans that day to hang out with the boys they had met at Echo Lake Park the day before. So they were going to go back again and see these boys and have a grand old time. But in that conversation, Jeanette told Gail that she wouldn't be able to keep those plans that day because she had household chores to do. Mom wants me to clean. I can't go. Sorry. But Gail was like, no, 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 no. That's a terrible excuse. Do your chores and then find a way to like come to my house. You have to come to my house. We have to do this. We made these plans. So Jeanette's like, oh, okay, I'll hitchhike to your house. Which, if you can remember all the way back to our Ted Bundy episodes, that's very common right now. Right? In, in 1972, hitchhiking was not thought to be unsafe or weird. It was just something lots of people did to get from point A to point B. Yep. Jeanette asked her sisters and a few of her friends if they would actually make the journey to the neighboring town of Summit with her. So she's like, hey, I'm going to go to Gail's house. Can you like, you want to come with me? How about we all... Let's all go, yeah. you know, so she didn't have to do it alone. But nobody would, would bite. Nobody was going with her. Aww. I know. So she gathered all her belongings in her purse and told her mother that she was going to walk to the train station, which was in Summit, like three miles from her house. And there she would catch a train that would take her closer to Gail's house. I know a lot of people are probably going, ooh, three miles is a long walk. But it's not that long. No. It's not insurmountable. It's less than an hour of a walk. That's our train station where I lived was about that. And we, mm -hmm. that's what we did. We just walked yeah, there. We walked. Florence De Palma was a little reluctant to let Jeanette go, but she convinced her that it would be all right. Jeanette, Jeanette was like, I'm 16. It's going to be fine. I can walk a few miles to the train station. Stop this. And her mom, you know, said, okay, all right, fine. You did your whatever chores. You can go. So then Jeanette walked out the front door of her house, down the driveway, to the road and made a left onto Clearview. I have drive here an avenue before. Apologies, friends. She went out onto a road, but she never planned on taking the train. She was always going to hitchhike. So Jeanette walked a short distance to her friend Donna Blattis's house. Now Donna, as it turns out, was grounded and okay. was not allowed to see Jeanette. My gosh, all these people are getting in so much trouble. They're very naughty. <laughs> there are also a lot of rumors that um, Donna was like just not allowed to see Jeanette because her family thought Jeanette was trouble. Ah. Uh, again, I said she had this reputation, but also there's like a story that floats around. I think it was from Gail that <laughs> the Vladises frequently had parties and gatherings at their house and Jeanette and Gail had shown, shown up with boys. Oh, okay. And Mrs. Blattis was like, get out of here. You brought boys. You're trouble. Right. So, well, and also, I mean, I don't know if the town is aware of, like, her sister Gwen. I, it's, but, so, like, it's so it's weird. They, they should be, but yeah. they, I don't know. But, like, they might, they might know some of the things that she's up to. I don't know if they're aware that she is now in rehab, right? Too. But it's just, like, I could see that as being... Like some parents being like, I don't 13 know. 13 months. That sounds like a you have to go have a baby sentence to me. But you know what? I don't know what happened. Anywho, it seems 
to me that she tried every which way to get somebody to take her to Gail's house because when she gets to the Vladis' home, Donna can't see her, but she asks Donna's mother, hey, can you give me a ride? She's brazen, but she does. And her mother says, no, I cannot. Rude. Yeah. So no one's helping her out. So Jeanette figures, all right, okay, I just have to hitchhike to Gail's house. That's what's going to happen. And then, according to everyone who knew her, Jeanette was gone. That's just it. At 10 p.m. that night, the De Palmas, now worried out of their mind, called the damn cops. But the cops gave them that age-old tale we all hate to hear. You have to wait 24 hours to report a missing person. She probably just ran away. Remember, fiends, you do not have to wait 24 hours to report a missing person. So frustrating. Uh Uh-huh. Now, I have long suspected that the cops just didn't look for these girls when they were like, oh, they just ran away. I always think you didn't look. You might have said you tried something, but you didn't look for these girls, the runaways. But I've never seen it in, like, seen any proof in print before now. Right. The following quotation from Death on the Devil's Teeth proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that they are absolutely not looking for these girls. Quote, It was strange how runaway situations were not handled the same way back then as they are today, Ed Kish says. Back then, runaways did not garner much attention because they left willingly and running away from home was not a criminal offense. You know, you put the stuff out on the teletype, but did you really look for them? No. Ugh. No? You, no. You just said straight up no. Oh, great. Well, here's the thing. I like that he says that running away from home was not a criminal offense. As a minor, you can't just be gone. You are your parents' property. The police have to bring you back. It isn't a criminal offense, but it also isn't a thing you can just do. A child can't be like, well, I'm off now. And then you're like, great, bye. You're still responsible. Yeah. So that there isn't total truth in this matter at all. It just makes me really mad. Mm. So the next day, as promised, it's been 24 hours now, the De Palma's called back to report Jeanette as officially missing. And now the Springfield Police Department kind of have their hands tied. They have to do something. Yeah. So they issue a missing persons bulletin for Jeanette, and it said, quote, Mrs. De Palma of number four Clearview Drive, so it's Drive, sorry if I said Avenue before, reports her daughter Jeanette, age 16, five foot tall, brown hair and eyes, 115 pounds, wearing tan slacks and blue top, missing since 10 o'clock p.m., 8 Alarm sent out. Number 30286. That's it. And they did exactly what Ed Kish said they did. Next to nothing. Until Jeanette was found dead and suddenly the public wanted a satanic ritual murder. And so they gave them one. But that's where we're going to leave off for today. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I have everything laid out until she goes missing and then... Next episode, we will cover the investigation, the theories, and Weird New Jersey's involvement in this case, and how easy it is for facts to wander away into fiction when the audience is eager enough. Mm. Then to round out our series on Jeanette, we have our excellent interview for you. Jesse Pollock will tell us all about the rocky road he traveled down investigating this case for nearly a decade. Without Jesse and Mark Moran, the truth in Jeanette's case may well have fallen off the face of the earth the day after a dog showed up with her arm. So, that's part one. Stay tuned for part two. Great. Thank you. So, uh, bye for now, fiends.
see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Teeth like Shakira's hips don't lie.